everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. In the context of the 2020 election, there's been a lot of conversation about criminal justice reform, specifically in communities of color. But the subject has reached a boiling point around the late candidacy of Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York and one of the chief sponsors of the stop and frisk police policy that targeted people of color for extraordinary rights violations in the name of reducing crime. Footage from a 2015 appearance has been especially problematic for Bloomberg. In it, he doubles down on the racial stereotyping at the core of stop and frisk, and he unabashedly defends the approach. So what is stop and frisk and how does it relate to this moment in time in the context of politics, changing social and cultural norms and the discussion about racial equity? That's where we want to start the conversation today. And we want to kick off the thing with two people who have thought a lot about this subject. Jeffrey Fagan is a professor at Columbia Law School. Jeffrey, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Also with us is Ted Theodore Johnson, uh, who's a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. Ted, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah. Uh, Before we get started, I want to play a quick clip of Michael Bloomberg apologizing for stop and frisk, which he did recently uh, in the context of his presidential campaign, campaign. Let's take a listen. Now, hindsight is 2020, but as crime continued to come down as we reduced stops, and as it continued to come down during the next administration, to its credit, I now see that we could and should have acted sooner and acted faster to cut the stops. I wish we had. I'm sorry that we didn't. But I can't change history. However, today, I want you to know that I realized back then I was wrong, and I'm sorry. He says he was wrong and that he was sorry. But this is what Bloomberg had to say February 5th, 2015, in his Aspen Institute address. He said 95% of murders, murderers, and murder victims fit one MO. You can just take a description, Xerox it, and pass it out to all the cops. They are male minorities, 16 to 25 It's true in New York. It's true in virtually every city. And that's where the real crime is. You've got to get the guns out of the hands of people that are getting killed. Jeffrey Fagan and Ted Johnson, I want to start with having you guys talk about uh, the history of this policy in New York City, what it was, what effect it had, and whether we ought to embrace Mike Bloomberg's walk back of his support for it in 2020. Jeffrey Fagan, I'll start with you. Um, Thanks. Uh, There is a history to this. It began under um, Mayor Giuliani and his uh, first police commissioner, William Bratton. And um, stop and frisk was part of the broken windows strategy where they would try and uh, enforce um, minor crimes um, uh, that were occurring in communities that had higher crime rates, Uh, usually crimes of disorder, social disorder in the hopes of um, one of two things, um, either deterring people from engaging in street activity uh, or to find people who with outstanding warrants. And I think the warrant hunt is something that gets lost in this conversation. Uh, Over the the rest of uh, uh, Giuliani's two terms, um, uh, the practice ramped up. It reached uh, 
uh, a boiling point when, with the murder of Amadou Diallo by police officers in the vestibule of his apartment building in the Bronx in um, 1999. Um, and what happened afterwards was that uh, Attorney General Spitzer launched an investigation of the stop and frisk practice, and it's published and it's online, and uh, it, I was the lead researcher on that project. And we found uh, very, very strong evidence of both Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment violations, in other words, discrimination and unconstitutional stops. And the report was available, and it was available to the incoming administration in 2001 um, under Mayor Bloomberg. Uh, evidently, they chose to ignore it, and they um, exploded the practice over the following uh, 12 years of his administration. And they only cut it back in 2012 after the federal court during the litigation on um, Floyd versus the city of New York signaled very strongly that the plaintiffs were going to win. And they began to cut back right then. Uh, my sense was that they cut back knowing they were going to lose and they wanted to be able to show the federal court that they really didn't need oversight and monitoring, uh, that they would be able to take care of their own business. The fact that the apology from, from Mayor Bloomberg was um, interesting. I think he kind of revealed his own, his inner priors, as, as we say, when mm-hmm. his Aspen comment. But um, the one thing that struck me was that he had all the facts in hand. He knew very well that this was discriminatory. He had evidence throughout the, the period of time, the 12 years, that uh, things were going, that, 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 that crime rates were going down, even the stops were going up and then going down, that they were really untied to, to, to one another. But in the apology, he never apologizes on the merits. He never said, I got it wrong. We didn't need to do that to bring the crime rates down. He apologized basically, as I read it and hear it, for hurting people's feelings, mm. which he did. And um, one thing I want to, in our research, we showed a few different, um, seriously, strongly adverse effects of stop and frisk. One was the suppression of school test scores among African-American teenagers and young adults. Uh, uh, trauma that was measurable in a variety of surveys. Uh, people reported PTSD levels that were commensurate with combat soldiers. Um, and um, some injuries. Um, so... Uh, it's, it was a practice where the facts were available, and for a, a mayor who professed to be very attuned to statistics and data and tried to be very rational, he certainly was willing to have uh, engaged in some blindsight with respect to the facts on the ground. Mm. Uh, Ted Johnson, you wrote a piece in The Atlantic back in 2014 about the relationship between descendants of enslaved people in this country and the stop and frisk policy. Uh, tell, us, tell us about that piece. Yeah, so uh, this policy actually harkens back to um, when enslaved people, and even um, after slavery ended in Jim Crow, when black people in particular had to show their papers in order to get around their communities, the the towns they lived in, and without having the proper papers, um, which, by the way, did not require a law enforcement officer to request. It could be any white person could request the papers of an enslaved person or or a black person living in Jim Crow. And if you didn't have those papers, you were subject to arrest. And especially after slavery, that arrest often resulted in you doing hard labor, which is the same sort of agrarian labor one would be doing if Mm. they were enslaved. And so it was almost a way of um, supplementing the labor force that had been decimated by the end of the institution of slavery. Um, so one thing, though, you know, stop and frisk is is a constitutionally permitted activity, and um, so the Supreme Court has ruled over and over that these sort of stops are permitted. However, um, as was mentioned, 
the way New York City did it was really racially discriminatory to the point that the and in the case mentioned it was found that not that the stop and frisk was unconstitutional, but that New York City's practice of it mm-hmm. was unconstitutional. And this is why Bloomberg is having such a hard row to hoe in trying to explain away his rationale for it. Um, and the apology, of course, was necessary, um, but it is also politically expedient because he's running for president in a party where one in four primary voters uh, in 2018 were african-american and in many states including the upcoming south carolina something like two and three black uh, voters in the primary will be uh, african-american so there is no path to the nomination without the black voter and uh, bloomberg is having to explain his uh, rationale for um, a policy where something like ninety percent of the stops were black and brown men Mm -hmm. and seventy percent of those stopped were often found innocent of any wrongdoing and so uh, this is a, um, a policy he's, he's going to have to account for, and an apology is a good first step, but it's wholly insufficient for the amount of damage that was caused to, to uh, those communities uh, during his tenure at, in New York. Yeah, and, and in your piece, you, you sort of explore the idea that stop and frisk can't really be uh, pursued in a way that doesn't reflect the racism that we see in in the wider society in other words that because we live in in a, in a country that was founded on the idea of black inequality a policy like stop and frisk uh, is 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 always going to, to to transgress those those restraints against uh, racial profiling uh, you, you write that stop and frisk isn't racist on purpose it was just born that way <laughs> yeah that's right and, and so if you live in a society, where one group of people have been criminalized, often as an excuse for their subjugation, then when you implement policies that are ostensibly um, formed to make the society safer, uh, a, racist, a racist society will necessarily target those subject to racism as the objects of, of the policy. And so um, while the policy itself could be colorblind, its implementation will be racist um, if if we're in a society that views black and brown people differently from the rest of society. I think that's exactly right. And I want to um, add that there's there's a, a license that's given by the Supreme Court, starting with a series of decisions, uh, beginning with Terry v. Ohio in 1968, that kind of constitutionalized um, stops that are based really on uh, the subjective perceptions of, of suspicion that officers form. And, and the, the court, in its opinion, celebrated the experience of police officers and so on. But that experience is very much tinged with race um, and um, bias, quite honestly. And we see that in the way that stop and frisk ultimately was practiced in New York. Uh, the suspicion seemed to be at all levels of the institution of the police department, from uh, the managers who allocated officers to particular neighborhoods down to the street officer. Uh, that suspicion... Um, was very much racialized, and uh, we saw the results in terms of the numbers. And uh, the stops themselves were often based on threadbare notions of suspicion, really hunches by the, by the police officers. Often they just simply followed a script when they recorded the basis for why they did the stops. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just flagrantly in violation of the, the rules. And so, yeah, uh, we, stops, uh, investigative stops, as we call them in the law, are, are perfectly fine and permitted. Um, but not the way it was practiced here. This was a racialized and racially weaponized practice. Hmm. 
Uh, my guests are Jeffrey Fagan, a professor at Columbia Law School, and Ted Johnson, a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law. We're talking about stop and frisk and the role it has come to play in the Democratic presidential primaries here in 2020, as Michael Bloomberg, who was mayor of New York while that policy was in place in that city, uh, is now one of the candidates to be president of the United States. Um, we definitely want to hear from listeners about this subject, uh, and we want to hear what you think about stop and frisk. We want to think. We want to hear what you think about the Bloomberg candidacy. Uh, we want to hear what you think about the conversation about criminal justice reform that has developed during the 2020 presidential contest. Uh, we're going to take phone calls a little later in the program when we have Lester Spence, uh, political science and Africana studies professor at Johns Hopkins University, join us to talk more about stop and frisk and Bloomberg. Uh, but for now, uh, go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Jess on Twitter says, it's racist, shameful, and disqualifying. AK on Twitter says, people are worried about Trump singing a third term as POTUS. Bloomberg actually got the rules changed in New York, so he could do that. He's no believer in democracy. Again, if you want to join the conversation for now, go to Twitter, and uh, at about half past the hour, we will end this segment and begin a new one, and you will be able to call in and join the conversation. Uh, Jeffrey and Ted, I, I, I wonder what you make of this conversation that has been going on in the 2020 presidential race about criminal justice reform. This is an issue that hasn't just come up during the Bloomberg uh, uh, candidacy, uh, Kamala Harris, who was the attorney general of California, essentially saw her momentum completely sapped, uh, I think, by by stories and reporting about the way she dealt with criminal justice uh, in that state. Um, are, are we at a point where where these things are are changing in the way that we see them and changing in the way that we judge the elected officials who are in charge of these kinds of things. Jeffrey, I'll start with you again. Well, I, I think this is a very important point to raise because the criticisms that were leveled at Kamala Harris uh, and that, that were largely responsible for derailing her candidacy, uh, uh, Amy Klobuchar seems to have escaped those criticisms despite having a fairly um, bad record. I would just simply use a, a general term. Her record of... Um, um, failure to prosecute police officers who uh, shoot or kill um, innocent citizens. Um, her uh, um, willingness to put one young man behind bars for um, an exceptionally long sentence with serious doubts about his guilt. And in general, her record as a prosecutor, which showed some very heavy, uh, strong tendencies towards prosecution and tough sentencing of African-American defendants. Um, that's all on the table, and yet she seems to um, have escaped the kind of criticism and deflation of her candidacy that affected Kamala Harris. So I think we need to think about um, the role of race in the politics, mm -hmm. in, the, in the political campaign. Mm. Ted? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And a, a couple of things. One is when criminal justice is, is raised in presidential debates, it's often raised as a black issue, and the candidates talk about it as sort of signaling to black America that we hear your concerns and we're ready to address it. But the discrimination in our criminal justice system is an American issue, and it is certainly true that black and brown people 
um, are discriminated within the system. But this is uh, this is something that needs to be corrected because the system is broken um, and not as a you know as a token policy uh, uh, agenda item for for Black America. The other part of this is that um, Black and Brown communities do want their communities to be safe. If there is high crime there, if there are a lot of drugs there, um, they want the policemen in those communities removing drugs and removing violence and, and making their communities and their streets safer. The issue is when you are criminalized just by virtue of being a resident in these communities, which is what Stop and Frisk often did, or at least uh, that was the, the way people felt in those communities, this is where the problem lies. So the, the remedy isn't to remove all law enforcement from black and brown communities, and the remedy also isn't to um, throw tons of police force into these communities that then over-criminalize folks, but it is just to render the same amount of service and protection that are afforded to other communities uh, and so that, you know, Americans of, of color can experience the same Amer- uh, America that others do. Hmm. Um, I also um, wonder what you make, Ted and Jeffrey, of the black mayors and other leaders across the country who are coming out pretty strongly in favor of Mike Bloomberg. I heard an interview with Michael Nutter, who had been the mayor in Philadelphia last week here on NPR uh, in which he really defends very strongly Mike Bloomberg's leadership in New York. He, he was critical of, of stop and frisk and, and said it was you know an error in judgment and a policy that really did hurt black and brown people, but that uh, he's able to put that aside. I, I wonder what you make of that that move by Bloomberg to, to first of all, court those, those supporters, but, but how willing those supporters are seem to be is one of the things that I that I find surprising. Ted, I'll start with you this time. Yeah, and so I think what we're seeing here is black political pragmatism um, at play. And this is a number of local black elected officials who are moderate to conservative on the democratic scale. Um, you know, most black voters, uh, I think three and four, identify as either conservative or moderate, and only one of four identify as liberal. Actually, I think it's closer to one in five. Mm. And, and so the, the, if you're looking at the presidential nominees and you're looking at the moderate lane, you've essentially got Biden, Bloomberg, uh, Klobuchar, and Buttigieg. Klobuchar and Buttigieg are essentially polling at a statistical near zero with voters of color, and Biden seems to be faltering. And Bloomberg has presented himself through ads and other means as the, the, the next choice of the person that can beat Trump. So this is a matter of uh, these elected officials being pragmatic with their endorsements, but it's also uh, evinces a Bloomberg strategy of seeking out local black officials and that will sort of endorse his campaign in order to sway local black communities instead of seeking out national black officials in an effort to sway the national, you know, black America writ large behind his community. And local appeals often uh, reap more reward than these national appeals. So it's a strategic play by Bloomberg and a pragmatic play by these officials. Uh, and the last thing I'll say on this is that a number of Bloomberg's um, financial contributions and through his charities have helped these mayors, uh, I'm thinking of Tulsa, Oklahoma in particular, to establish memorials to black um, historic events uh, mm-hmm. that have happened in their communities in the past. And so he's been forming these relationships over time and now is uh, seeking to, to reap some reward from, from those relationships. Mm. Jeffrey? I, I find it a little, uh, I, I think Ted's right. I think his, his reading of the politics is, is, is spot on. 
But I, I find, I'm a little puzzled by the support when we put the totality of Bloomberg's views and actions that affected the black community in New York and also the Latino community, but more the black community. Um, his statements about redlining being the source of, or the, the opposition or the laws um, um, criminal, uh, rejecting redlining as a practice uh, as being the source of the problems in the financial crisis the recession, in 2008, sure. that's, that's a little crazy when we think about the practices of the bankers themselves. Um, his, um, uh, his claims on taxation, uh, he would like to see taxes um, further cut which I think would place a burden um, on cities to fund essential services that would provide the kinds of security, for example, that um, Ted mentions. Uh, he's, um, uh, he, he, he's also tried to, um, well, inequality in New York rose dramatically under his, his um, mayoralty. And he went to court to oppose a, a raise, an increase in the minimum wage from, I think, $7 a month at the time to $10 which would have affected low-income workers and pr- primarily working-class workers, mostly people of color. So I, I think there's, there's, um, actions, there's actions that he took and statements that he made that are not about criminal justice, but show some, um, I'd say, blindsight with respect to um, the, the economic and social fortunes of black folks. Okay, Jeffrey Fagan, professor at Columbia Law School, and Ted Johnson, senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Thank you. Up next, we're going to continue this conversation with Johns Hopkins professor Lester Spence, and we will take your calls. What do you think of Stop and Frisk? What do you think of Michael Bloomberg's candidacy for the presidency? Is it doomed because of his link to Stop and Frisk in New York, or are you willing to overlook it? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. We're talking this hour about stop and frisk, the really, really controversial police policy that was in place while Michael Bloomberg was the mayor of New York. He had a lot of problems with that problem, with that policy while he was mayor, lost a federal court case that challenged the racial stereotyping that was part of stop and frisk. And now, as a candidate for president in 2020, he's being called to answer for that policy. What do you think of stop and frisk? What do you think of the effect it had on people in New York City, on black and brown people in New York City? And how do you relate that? to Michael Bloomberg's candidacy for president here in 2020. Do you think it's just one of the many factors that we ought to be thinking about, or do you think it is a disqualifying association? Is it something that means he should not get the nomination and therefore not be president? We really want to hear from listeners, of course, this hour. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. And joining us now to continue talking about Stop and Frisk and Michael Bloomberg is Lester Spence, a professor of political science and Africana studies at Johns Hopkins University. He is also a native Detroiter. Lester, always great to have you with us here on Detroit Today. It's always good to be on. 
good to right. hear from you. So let's start with your assessment of stop and frisk as policy that had such an effect on black and brown communities in New York while Bloomberg was mayor. Uh, talk about where that policy comes from and why it's as controversial as it is. Uh, so in the, if we locate kind of the, the modern era, like sometime in the, the 80s or 90s, what we see is um, beginning um, probably most prominently with Rudolph Giuliani when he was mayor of New York is this attempt to use aggressive policing to make, uh, to kind of transform cities. And that involves uh, stop and frisk. That involves uh, the use of far more aggressive tactics. Like there was a tactic I actually witnessed myself when I was in New York. In fact, the first time I was there as an adult where they would send like literally dozens of police cars to areas that did not have a crime just as kind of a show of force. Mm. Uh, and what this basically did was transform cities like New York and other cities that use similar tactics, uh, including Baltimore, where I, I live outside of now, into basically police states for sizable portions of their residents. So uh, in uh, New York City's case, uh, within a short period of time, approximately 4.4 million New Yorkers were, uh, were, were victimized by stop and frisk. Uh, in um, Baltimore within a three-, four-year period. In fact, I think when you were living out here, there were more people stopped than there were residents in mm -hmm. Baltimore. Right. Uh, and these stops were concentrated amongst, um, amongst black, brown, and poor communities. And in the New York case, in the Baltimore case, over 90% of these stops um, did not result in, in, uh, in any crime. It wasn't as if they were you know, found and, and sentenced, uh, they were often charged with something that they would go to court that, you know, that, that, that charge would be dropped. Mm. And so when we're thinking about the Bloomberg candidacy, what role should this policy play? I mean, Michael Bloomberg is somebody who has done a lot of different things in his life. He did a lot of different things as mayor of the city of mm -hmm. New York. Uh, he, he's a billionaire who has lots of uh, other activities he's involved in, including huge philanthropic interests. Mm -hmm. Where does stop and frisk fit in, in the assessment of his candidacy? So what I would do is I would put that number, $4.4 million, against uh, a couple of other numbers, right? Mm -hmm. So I have a friend, actually, he too is a former Detroiter. He, I'm not going to mention his name because, you know, I don't want to call him <laughs> uh, Michael Bloomberg, he's worked to have Bloomberg, when he was mayor, help at least maybe 2,000 people directly, right? I mean, I believe, I believe this person when he says that, mm -hmm. right? Um, so you put that 4.4 million against the 2,000, and it seems to me one number is a lot larger than the other. <laughs> um, he actually just gave uh, my employer, Johns Hopkins, approximately, I think he gave them one point five billion. Yeah. billion. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he wants to use it to make it such that lower income uh, applicants who get into Hopkins don't have to worry about paying. And, and, that, and that's significant, right? So you, put, you can put the $4.4 million up against that $1.5 billion, and maybe, you know, maybe it becomes a push. Yeah. But then when you actually think about what happens with those 4.4 million stops, like a lot of listeners uh, may just think about those stops as one-time only encounters, right? That is, 
I get stopped by a police officer. The police officer, you know, stops me, frisks me. And let's imagine that the police officer does it gently. That is, it isn't, it isn't aggressive at all. It's just as respectful as something like that can be. And then, and then I go on my, my way, merry way. Mm-hmm. Police stops don't function like that. First of all, they're more aggressive than not. But second of all, with a number of those cases, people were charged with something, and then they end up having to go to court and then have that something removed. They still had costs associated with it as far as court costs. And then if you're talking about people who work at the equivalent of a Walmart, they couldn't necessarily take that time off. So you're talking about people who lose jobs. If you don't appear in the court to uh, the, the contest what you were charged for, you then have a warrant on your record that you can actually legitimately be stopped for. So for 4.4 million potential in those 4.4 million cases, each of those cases represents something, uh, an encounter that can, that can go awry like that. So when you put those 4.0 million stops against that 1.5 billion, even in that instance, mm-hmm. you're talking about something that should be, that should be disqualifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and now in my case, I happen to believe that the wealth itself is a problem. Like, I mean, to think about it, we're talking about what Booker's no longer in the race, Harris is no longer in the, in the uh, way in the race, Castro is no longer in the, in the race, Andrew Yang is no longer in the race. All these folks who had to actually compete demo, in a democratic primary using traditional political means hmm. end up dropping out. The fact that we're even talking about somebody who hasn't been in a single primary, participated in a single debate, the only reason he's there is because he literally is worth $38 for every second that I've been alive on the planet. <laughs> I think I think those issues are all all make it where where we should really be seriously asking why he's in the race in, uh, in the yeah. first place. So, so I, I really want to get to listeners and their comments and, and questions. But before we do that, I want to talk a little about crime and safety and policing in minority neighborhoods because oh, yeah, yeah. I, because yeah. i think it's yeah. more complicated yeah. than just stop and frisk yeah. i mean stop and frisk i don't th- i don't think that there's anybody anymore who's defending that that policy at the same time we have these tremendous issues with crime and safety yeah. in minority neighborhoods and one of the defenses that that often gets trotted out for stop and frisk is well Look at New York now. Look at New York neighborhoods. Look at the murder rate in New York now versus before that. I want you to so, talk a little about how how all this fits together. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm rushing because I know you've got callers. Yeah. So stop and frisk is part of a broader suite of policies that we call broken windows policing. Broken windows policing, the idea of it comes out of an article published in The Atlantic in the early 80s by James Q. Wilson mm-hmm. and then a, a, a co-author whose name I forget. Um, and it was not vetted by peer review. It was just a set of ideas. Those ideas then end up getting translated into policy, stop and frisk, and a range of policies. It's important to note that the data is pretty clear that broken windows policing and all of its variants have no impact, no impact no impact on crime, violent or otherwise, in the cities that's been used in. To the extent that we did have a crime drop, because we did somewhere between, I think, around the mid-'80s through the 90s, that crime drop actually not only occurs 
in cities that used broken windows policing. It occurred in, occurred in cities that did not use broken windows policing and even occurred in cities outside of the United States. So what that suggests is what we are really looking at are demographic shifts. Hmm. As, the baby, as the baby boom generation gets older and they age out of crime, you've got a significant crime drop because they con- constituted a significant proportion of the world's population at large. Right. So it's really important to note that. So what we're talking about is a dynamic where cities where um, poor uh, black and brown communities are both over policed, but at the, then at the same time, they're under policed. So to, to use the Baltimore instance, uh, the Justice Department found that in instances of sexual assault, for example, like uh, Baltimore police officers just wouldn't actually prosecute it at all. They tried to get people not to actually file the charges. Um, in Detroit, uh, what, there were approximately, is it 13,000 rape kits that were found yes. in, a, uh, in an empty warehouse? Right. 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 So you've got an instance in which you've got uh, levels of over-policing and under-policing. And, but, but again, we know broken windows doesn't solve the problem at all. It makes it worse. Yeah. Uh, again, if you want to join the conversation, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Of course, we've got lots of folks queued up to have this conversation. Uh, let's start with Felix in Detroit. Felix, welcome to the show. Hi, this is hey. Felix. Hey, go uh, ahead. I was just wondering, um, do you... I wanted him to talk about the candidates feeling the uh, economical racism that we feel as people when uh, Bloomberg can come in with billions of dollars and, you know, to compare to their little millions that they have, you know, can they can he talk about how, you know, how we as people, you know, we don't have the funds to uh, actually start businesses and stuff like that. Yeah. And is the candidates filling it now because mm. Bloomberg is coming in with so much money. Mm. That's a really yeah, interesting so, perspective. Yeah, Go so ahead. There was a, so there was an article today uh, I just ran across. There are only five black billionaires. There's Oprah, there's uh, Mike, there's Jay-Z, there's, uh, there's Robert Smith, and then there's some other guy. Robert Smith and the other guy are like venture capitalists, mm-hmm. right? Bloomberg actually has – so if you add up those five, I think you get to maybe six or like seven or eight billion total. Bloomberg has like seven to eight times that. Yeah, it's like right? $60 billion. Bezos right? has 10 to 15 times that, right? So when we're talking about that level of wealth, before you even get to a race, that level of wealth, I think, is deeply, deeply problematic. But then when you compare the wealth he's able to amass versus, the, versus what somebody like a Cory Booker or Kamala Harris, you know, what they bring to the table, it just makes it, I mean, unfair isn't the word, right? There has to be some other word for it. And uh, one of my colleagues used, uh, you know, a, a Bernie Sanders surrogate used the term oligarch mm-hmm. to, uh, to do- refer to uh, Bloomberg and caught a lot of flack from one of my colleagues for it. Uh, Jason Johnson gave her a lot of flack for it. But I think, I think, that, I think that term is right. If, he, if he's not an oligarch, he's a plutocrat, and we should be really, really wary even if he were black. Now, because America's America, mm-hmm. that would never have happened. But <laughs> even if he were black, we should be really wary about, about the idea of a billionaire just being able to run the office, dodge almost everything that every other Democratic candidate has, every other Democratic candidates have to do. Mm, yeah. Uh, Felix, I really appreciate the call uh, and the question and the comparison that you drew there. Let's go to Tom in northwest Detroit. Tom, welcome to the show. 
Yeah, good morning. And you know what? I knew Les's father. But anyway, we, <laughs> we lived in the same building uh, on, on a street called Harmon. Lester can't come on this show without some oh, wow. echo of his past showing up. <laughs> he's he's but, but anyway, to me, this searching, uh, this stop and frisk is nothing but, you know, stress resurrected. Uh, <clears throat> give you a personal thing with me. Back when I was a much younger guy in platforms and, you know, afros, I was six foot 11. And you know how tall, tall I am, Steve. <laughs> I was stopped by the police, all right, without making a long story long. And so another cop came and he said, well, did this guy tell you why you were stopped? And I said, no. And he showed me a composite picture of um, John Boyd. And I said, this guy had a right to stop me. But, you know, but but ultimately, I mean, to just be walking down the street or in your vehicle and pulled over and, you know, they, you know, they'll ask you, well, you says, well, why am I being pulled over? And they don't give you any excuse. I mean, come on, let's get real here. That's nothing but what it says, stop and frisk. I mean, it's like a um, probably the wrong word, but a totalitarian state where, mm. you know, yeah. you've given police. Uh, a, a car to just run carte blanche over the resident, yeah. you know, and hopefully, God forbid, that this would come to fruition. Okay, Tom. But, um, I, yeah, you know. I, I appreciate the call and the, and the comments, uh, Lester. T- connect the history of stress, which people here yeah. in Detroit, of course, all understand and and many people remember, to to, to policies like stop and frisk. I mean, you're talking about a generation in time, yeah. but but mm-hmm. very similar approaches. So I'm actually giving a talk at Michigan, uh, what, Thursday? At the Tobin the Center, yeah. Day after tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, my, my, and what I'm doing is going to be talking about Detroit. And the conference is about emerging urbanisms. But what I'm going to be talking about is re-emerging urbanisms, right? Because if you, took, if you look at a number of different policies, right, you could actually just go back in time 30, 40, 50, 60 years and find elements of them. They're not the same, but with stress, as with broken windows policy, you have this idea that the best way to protect the quote-unquote real residents of a city is to protect them by whatever means necessary, no, no, you know, no reference to Malcolm X intended, from the other, mm-hmm. right? So you've got generation, and and this peop, and this stuff is really localized. In as much as so, there's a science fiction book out. Um, it was written years ago, called "The City in the City," and the idea of it was that you actually had two cities sharing the exact same space, and some people would have to kind of like turn their bodies in a certain weird way to experience the other city. Mm-hmm. What we're looking at with broken windows is that I is is kind of the this the the, the, the social instantiation of a city in the city framework where there are people like you and I and the caller and my dad and my brother who experienced this really deep form of policing in the same space where p- other people with capital and other people who are white and maybe a middle class, they don't experience that at all. And in fact, they may feel more safe because of that. Hmm. And this is really complicated relationship. Yeah.
Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about Stop and Frisk. And we really want to continue to hear from you. Jamal in Hamtramck, Adrian in Detroit, Eric in Detroit. We will get to you next. We also want to hear from people who maybe are supporting Michael Bloomberg and call and tell us why you're able to look past Stop and Frisk or some of these other issues and think he is the candidate to get the Democratic nomination. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guest is Lester Spence, professor of political science and Africana studies at Johns Hopkins University. We're talking about stop and frisk, which is becoming a central issue in the 2020 presidential campaign because Michael Bloomberg, who was mayor in New York while that policy was in place, is also a candidate for the Democratic nomination for president. We, of course, want to hear from you, 313 1019 about what you think about stop and frisk, what you think about Michael Bloomberg. Call and tell us where you think this all fits in the narrative about who will win the nomination. Is Michael Bloomberg the strongest candidate that the Democrats have, despite having been responsible for stop and frisk in New York? Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Eric in Detroit. Eric, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Good morning. Hey. Uh Hey, Les, uh, Eric from uh, Michigan. How you doing? Uh, hey, what's up? Happy to- Eric Williams. Hey, what's up? <laughs> oh, my man. Eric, what's up? Wow. <laughs> uh, always great when you're back in the deep. Um, yeah, I, so I lived in New York from 96 to 2010 when I moved back home. And I don't – stop and frisk is really a misnomer. It's more like, it's more like stop, run up on you pull out a weapon, uh, and force you to your knees or against the wall. I used to live in East Flatbush, and I'd say it happened to me about a half a dozen times. I worked in Manhattan. I would come home late at night. My hair wasn't completely gray yet. And the idea of frequently having somebody, when street crimes unit was really going, like in plain clothes or even walking up behind you and suddenly putting a gun up to your head and saying, run your pockets, you can't tell if you're being jacked or you're being frisked. Call it, you know, you don't know who it is doing it to you at first. And knowing it's the police and how frequently police interactions go awry, mm. calling it stop and frisk is, is just, it, it's so misleading, it's not even funny. And the fact that and Eric, you were, and Eric is a friend of mine. Eric, you were a lawyer at that time. Am, right. I, am I correct? Yes, yes, I was. Um, and it happened under, and it happened under Giuliani when I was coming back. Uh, I went to Columbia Law, so coming back from uptown late at night. It was, it was just a nightmare. It made you literally have the shakes every time you got off the train. Hmm. It's, just, it's just a nightmare. And yeah, Eric. You can't play it down. So, I mean, I, I think the, the, the importance of the point that you're making is that for, for people who don't have those experiences, this conversation takes on a really different dimension. I mean, the, the, just the words you're using here about how stop and frisk is too gentle a description of – of the kind of things that you that you experienced, I think is is really important for people who live outside black and brown communities to understand that this was not just about this kind of polite inquiry that the police yeah. might make of somebody, but it was very frequently something itself quite violent. 
And, and no, and no. So every time I come on the show, I, it's, I feel like my duty to talk, to inject questions of class into questions of racial inequality, because when we don't deal with class, we make it seem like all black people are the same. But this is an instance where I've been focusing, I talk about class, but it really is just race. Eric Williams was, was, he was, he is a straight up lawyer. Now, just because he's a lawyer doesn't mean he should have some special relationship with the, with the police. I'm not suggesting that. But what I am suggesting is, is that there, if you are black or brown, particularly if you are male, there was nothing you could do. There was no clothes you can wear. There was no, no language, no English language you could speak. There are no shoes you can have on. There is no, there was no nothing. It was solely, it's literally like, when, and when you say it out loud, it, it really is like a science fiction, like a bad science fiction story. But that was the experience. So I've got people, you know, I've still got people I went to like grade school with and high school with, you know, many of them are white and working class, and some of them may be listening. So, so this is what I would say to them. Imagine, you know, we're, I'm, I'm 50 years old. So imagine, you know, we're 50 years old. Imagine you, your brother, your sister, your parents, and your kids, and maybe all total there are 10 of them, right, 10 adults. Imagine if nine out of those 10 adults every other day had to worry about an encounter with the police, no matter what they did. Mm-hmm. That's what it's like. Mm-hmm. And that's real. That's, yeah. I'm not making that up. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. That's what it was like. And it's not, it's, not, uh, it's not something that ever ends. I mean, Lester, you and I have talked before about the way we have to educate our sons who are growing up in the same America that we did to, to be able to be aware of this and understand how to deal with it. And that's something that, that people outside of this community just don't have to do. And it is I, just about race. I, I was at a party uh, given, I was at a party in Baltimore, you know, Detroiters are everywhere. One of my girls, she graduated from Renaissance. She's uh, her and her husband uh, gave a party and Baltimore is equivalent of like uh like uh, Palmer Wood, mm-hmm. right? Um, one of the best parties of the year, and it happens during this big art festival, big, big outdoor party. The police came to her house, you know, black police officers came to her house and was like, listen, we just want to let you know that we plan to do everything we can to protect this party from the element, right? Now, she know, now, now my friend is cool, right? right? Kendra's good people. She, she knows what that means so she mm. tried to do everything she could to get the police to not act that way mm. but it got to the point that where my when my son came to the party my son was driving my then 300 dollars toyota corolla wearing <laughs> a um wearing a do-rag on his head <laughs> i had to walk him to his car mm. because because he looked like not because the, of crime he, because of the cops <laughs> right right because of the because because I, i'm like okay if the cops He's they're going to see this kid and they're going to stop him. And then I don't know what's going to happen. So I have to walk my 18 year old son to my car to be able to make sure he got away safe. And I have to think about that all the time. Wow. Wow. Again, Eric, I really appreciate the call and you're sharing that experience with uh, with us and the listeners. Let's go to Terry in Detroit. Terry. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. Hey, Terry. Um, Two points. One uh, on the issue of of stop and frisk, or, or I guess I'd like to bring a victim's perspective into this. And your guest was spot on saying that 
in, in a lot of ways, the community can be under-policed. There are 11,000 untested rape kits here. Mm-hmm. There were thousands tested. There are 11,000 untested. Mm-hmm. Nationally, 200,000 rape kits untested. Mm-hmm. There's some very real crime that is happening against people, against women. I was the victim of, I grew up in Detroit, victim of crime in Detroit, perpetrated by young brown brothers, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a brown person, mm-hmm. and, and I was victimized by brown people. Uh, and so I think, you know, we have to remember that the crime people experience is very real, and people really do want something to be done about that. And I really wish we would spend more time talking to people about being their better selves and, mm-hmm. and not committing crime, because crime is real. The second point is I'm concerned about this idea that if you're rich and successful in America, you don't get to be in politics. Um, if... Um, if we get upset about special interest funding politics, um, hmm. and then we still get upset about people funding their own politics. <laughs> then what do we want? But <laughs> yeah, what do we want? I mean, Bernie Sanders is raising millions of dollars, well over $50 million of other people's mon- uh, money he's spending. And so they're all spending tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars. So is the spending the problem? I mean, no matter whose money it is. Yeah, that's yeah, a great right, point, Terry. Right. I, I'm, I'm really glad you called and, and made both of those points. Uh, uh, so I'm going to tackle those. And, uh, I'm going to tackle yeah. those. We've in, got in about a minute and a half left, but go yeah, ahead. Yeah, yeah, no. Okay, so <laughs> the political science data is pretty clear that, that wealth skews uh, political priorities. Uh, the uh, political priorities of representatives are skewed towards the wealthy. Um, the wealthy themselves, and by here, I mean like really extra wealthy. There's $60.9 billion wealthy, and then there's $5 million wealthy. Those, there's a two differences of scale. The $60.9 billion folk can basically buy elections, can buy public policy, can buy tax law changes that can then allow them to extort their wealth. All you, the best example is the billions that Amazon uh, headquarters was able to extort before people organizing uh, in New York against it. So I think that, yes, wealthy should, the wealthy should have the right to participate in politics, um, but the idea of somebody being able to use their own money as opposed to uh, somebody like Sanders, who basically got nickels and dimes from millions of people to fund a campaign, those are, those are different things. It is really uh, As different. far as the question of crime and victimization, it's important to note um, that while I understand what the caller's talking about, all we've been talking about it here are victims, hmm. right? There are 4.4 million victims of policing. That, as far as I'm concerned, that was a crime. Now, how do we deal with people who are victims, uh, who are victimized by crimes committed by people outside of the state who aren't police? That's a really, really important question that a number of people are wrestling with. Yeah. It's not as if, I mean, you. I, you could, I'm sure you could find this weekend in Detroit somebody organizing against sexual assault, somebody organizing sure. against violent crime. The question is, how do we do that in a humane, humane way that doesn't involve basically creating a totalitarian uh, state within a city? Yeah. Okay, Lester Spence, never enough time to have this conversation with you, but thanks for being here. Uh, also, you can go check out Lester's speech at 6 p.m. on February 20th at the Taubman College at the University of Michigan. It's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation.